2: The best-known advocate of alternative medicine in the U.S., once taught at some of the top mainstream medical schools in the country. On this edition of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Dr. Deepak Chopra talks about what he's learned about the impact of meditation and other New Age practices on our physical well-being.
4: Dr. Chopra? Hi, how are you? Good, good. Um, I'm Carlos Watson. I'm actually a friend of your son, uh, um, Gautam. Very
5: nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Thank you so much.
4: Not at all. Not at all. Where are you today? Are you in uh, New York or Los Angeles? San Diego, actually. Oh, Oh, I love San Diego. I'm in the Bay Area. I'm on the other side of the state.
5: We're in the same uh, time zone.
4: Yeah, yeah. Do you live in California? Are you a Californian now? A home here and I have a little apartment in New York. Nice, nice. And where's your favorite place on this wonderful earth? Where do you most enjoy being?
5: Actually, I like New York, believe it or not. Uh, is that right? Okay. Like the, okay. The dynamism of New York and the ability to walk and take the subway. So, hoping to go back after the pandemic.
4: Yeah. Are you a, uh, my folks met in New York and I lived in New York for a little bit. Are you a late night person? Are you uh... Uh, early, early
5: evening person?
4: Okay, I always think of New York as as perfectly built for those of us who uh, who love to roam uh, at night. So uh
5: in a while, but not not on a daily basis.
4: Um well Dr. Chopra, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's a uh, it's a pleasure. Well,
5: thank you. Thank you.
4: It's funny, I don't know if you remember, but you were gonna join me at uh Ozzy Fest last year, our summer festival in New York. I was, I was, yeah. I was looking forward to that. So this is uh, you know, this is the way the world is meant to work.
5: For now, anyway, <laughs> yes.
4: For now, anyways, yeah, right. Better said, better said than I. Um, Dr. Chopra, I'm curious, I realized as I was thinking about you and thinking about our conversation today, I realized that you're one of these folks who has had this conversation a million times.
5: Do you still enjoy these interviews or yeah, is it? everyone has a different uh, take on and perspective on what we talk about. So yeah. And when I do, new, new material always emerges no matter
4: what. And do you ever, I mean, I'm sure you do sometimes, but but have you found moments where uh, your mind wanders a little bit or where you start to think about what's next? Or do you usually stay pretty present and engaged throughout these conversations?
5: Over the years, I've managed to stay present. You know, I've learned that that's the only way to do it. Hmm? Dr. Chopra, how did you meet uh, Oprah Winfrey?
4: Because I realized that your conversations and your relationship was really a, an important one, both for her and for you. It, it, or at least it feels like from afar, you guys would know better than I would. But, but how did you guys come to get to know one another and engage in these kind of conversations?
5: Well, uh, what happened is I was, um, I was teaching Michael Jackson uh, meditation, and he said, you should be on the Oprah show. I said, I don't know Oprah. He said, let me call it. That. And that's how it happened.
4: Oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. Um, Michael, from afar, seems like he was such a, a complicated person. Were you able to, to, to bring the best of your work to him uh, in your
5: mind? Michael was traumatized uh, from his childhood. You know, there was a lot of abuse, physical and other kind of abuse. As a result, he had a lot of um, uh, issues, emotional issues. Um, psychological issues, but on the other hand, he was uh, he was a genius and he was also internally very innocent and um, he would go off into a completely different state of being when he heard music or when there was music around him. He was also a very big fan of classical music, not many people know that but he used to listen to Vivaldi and Beethoven and Mozart. And he was also um, very interested in literature, philosophy. Um, he was an unusual person.
4: Huh, huh. You, you um, I've read that you started your career, at least in part, as a young doctor working in rural villages. Is that right? At least a portion of your training?
5: Well, I went to medical school in India And then what happened is after medical school, I had one year of uh, rural training in a village uh, where there were no facilities, no electricity, no running water, it was part of my training. But that was a long time ago, it was 1969, if I believe. And then 1970, I came to the United States and uh, then I got all my training in the United States. And so talk to me,
4: even though I've read about it, but I think it'd be helpful for our audience to hear how you went from a prominent doctor, classically trained, son of a doctor, brother of a doctor, if, if I'm not wrong, um, to, to someone who thought more broadly about health and medicine. How did that transformation happen?
5: So I did my internship in internal medicine in New Jersey. Then I went to Boston, and I got certified in internal medicine, board certified as an internist. And then I took training in endocrinology, which is the study of hormones. And then I took training in neuroendocrinology, brain chemistry. This is mid 70s, about 75 or so, so it took about four years to get to this place. And I was working with some very prominent uh, neuroendocrinologists and we were looking at brain chemicals, brain chemistry. And one of my colleagues one day made uh, a comment. She said, uh, she, by the way, she's no longer alive. She passed away a few years ago, but she was later after our fellowship and training, she became the head of brain chemistry at the NIH, uh, National Institutes of Health in the United States. And anyway, during one of our sessions, she one day made a comment that these chemicals we were looking at in the brain were molecules of emotion. And I, that kind of struck me. And I said, you should write a book about it. And she did. And I actually wrote the foreword. The book is called Molecules of Emotion by Candace Burt. And it attracted a lot of attention, but it became clear to us at that time that these molecules which by the way, these days, a lot of people know what these molecules are: serotonin, opiates, dopamine, oxytocin, there's something called anandamide, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But it became clear to us that these molecules actually not only mediated emotions, emotional messages to the body, but there were receptors to these molecules in all the parts of the body, stomach, heart, etc. In other words, your emotions had a direct effect on biochemical activity in the body. Uh, Today we know, if you you think, uh, you know, if I ask you to think of COVID-19 or some other tragic situation right now, uh particularly if it affects you, I ask you to think, okay, think of something that happened last two weeks ago, which caused you emotional distress. As soon as you think of that, there's something you feel in your body. So obviously your emotions are triggering reactions in your bodies. When you have stressful emotions, then adrenaline, cortisol, lots of inflammation, blood pressure goes up, immune system gets compromised. On the other hand, if you have the experience of love, compassion, joy, equanimity, just plain happiness, then you trigger these other peptides, serotonin, opiates, dopamine, oxytocin, and now it turns out that they're they're immunomodulators, they fine tune the immune system. So now we have a clear explanation of how what's happening in our minds, particularly emotional mind, affects our biology. This happened 35 years ago. It took a long time for science to catch on. Now everybody accepts that body and mind are a single unit, one entity. Just like mass energy is one entity, space-time is one entity, wave-particle is one entity, body-mind is one entity. There's no event in the mind that does not have a biological response in the body. There's no event in the body that's not registered in the mind. They're one phenomenon. We experience the mind as as thoughts and feelings and imagination and insight and creativity and all of that. But we also experience the body as a perceptual experience. The body is an intermittent stream of sensations and perceptions. And the two are correlated. There's no difference. You know, mind is a subjective experience of, Consciousness in the body is the objective experience of consciousness, and the world is a byproduct of both. The mind and body are projecting as experience of the world. So the forty-five years to get here, but it's good science now. Do, do what is next? Similar to that, because I,
4: it's I'm intrigued by the idea that this is something that you and Dr. Burt, may she rest in peace, were thinking about far before it became uh, conventionally accepted. What else in your mind is like that today, that 35 years from now we will finally appreciate, but that you feel like you're seeing now?
5: So recently, only in the last few years, some geneticists are saying that only 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant. Now, this is a very difficult statement for a normal novice non-scientists to understand. A genetic mutation is a genetic error. So think of genes as words and think of DNA as uh, the letters uh, that make up the words. So DNA, uh, which is deoxyribonucleic acid, is made up of four chemicals, A, T, C, G, and that, those are the abbreviations. A stands for adenine, T, thymine, cytosine, guanine, but ATCG, these are the letters of life in every living organism, whether it's a banana or it's a virus. or No, virus has little difference, but bacteria and plants and animals and humans and primates share the same letters, ATCG. And then these letters combine to make words. And some are short, some are long. The words we call genes. Genes then orchestrate uh, the production of everything that's happening in your body. Everything that's happening in your body is a result of genetic activity. Now, there are certain mistakes that happen that are called mutations. People don't really know why these mistakes happen. Some are called de novo mutations, some are called random mutations, some are environmental, like you know toxicity in the environment. But in any case, a mutation is a mistake, a genetic error. Only 5%, think of them as typos, okay? Your body is a story created by your genes. Your genes in turn are words, I'm speaking metaphorically, and the words themselves are made of letters in various combinations, A, T, C, and G. So all of life is A, T, C, and G. But the genes in different organisms are different. Like you know, the human genes are slightly different than say gorilla genes or chimpanzee genes, only by less than 1%. But 65% of the genes in your body are the same as a banana. 80% of the genes in your body is the same as a fruit fly. And on and on. You know, uh, on and on, approximately. So when there's a mistake that leads to disease, but now we are realizing only 5% of those mistakes guarantee the disease. For example, if somebody has a Baraka gene for breast cancer, let say Angelina Jolie had, she had a preventive mastectomy to prevent her from getting breast cancer. It was the right thing to do, okay? And for that, also, in the near future, there'll be technologies like uh, gene editing. In fact, this year, the Nobel Prize went for gene editing, right? But what I'm saying to you is only 5% of those mistakes actually guarantee the disease. The rest are influenced by lifestyle. And those lifestyle things include very simple things. Good sleep, managing stress, however you manage it, which includes meditation, but could be music, could be laughter, could be entertainment, could be massage, could be imagination, could be anything that relieves stress, okay? could be a good joke, okay? So uh, rest, restful sleep, stress management, movement, exercise, but now we know that if you add to exercise yoga and breathing, or any mind-body coordination, like martial arts, tai chi, chai chi Gong that stimulates a nerve in the body called the vagus nerve which counteracts the effects of inflammation which is responsible for chronic illness. So if you have good sleep, stress management, exercise, movement, controlled breathing, mind-body coordination and then nutrition. If you follow a diet which is has maximum diversity in plant-based foods which restores the microbiome in your gut which is the microbiome is the same genetic information as your body has, okay, except it's derived from bacteria. But you can change the genetic information in your gut, all, to, all, all of it, which means you can change 99% of the genetic information in your body by changing the microbiome. There are now technologies to do that through artificial intelligence. Look at your microbiome, find out the diet that's most appropriate for you, and through deep learning systems, actually change the microbial genetic information in your body, which means you have now 1% of the human um, genetic information to tackle, which is the genes you got from your parents. So the genes you got from your parents, only 25,000. Remaining 2 million genes in your body are bacteria, which you can change. The 1% that your parents gave you, or less than 1%, 25,000, you can't change. That's the cards that were dealt at the moment of conception. But now how do you play those cards? You play them through lifestyle, deep rest, mind-body coordination, nutrition, healthy emotions like love, compassion, joy, equanimity, being in touch with nature, balancing your circadian rhythms. If you do that, you can upgrade even the human genes, which means you can increase the activity of the genes that are responsible for self regulation, homeostasis, or healing, decrease the activity, downgrade the genes that cause inflammation and all kinds of other chronic diseases. So you now have the future of well being, in my opinion, is personalized, is predictable, is preventable. It requires your participation, so it's participatory, and it is process-oriented. It's not an overnight thing. It is a process. But I guarantee you that in the next 10, 15 years, we will see two sciences emerging. One is more than they have emerged now. One is epigenetics, which is regulating gene activity through lifestyle, and the other is neuroplasticity, how through changing our modes of thinking, feeling, even speaking and behavior, we can change the neural networks of our brain. So imagine, you can change gene activity, neural networks, you can reinvent your body. And that's what I'm doing right now, I'm 74 years old, and I have the biomarkers of somebody who's, I think, in their 30s or 40s. And, and say more about
4: that, Dr. Chopra, does that mean that, that you think you will still be able to be a runner or a tennis player in your 80s and 90s? Does that mean that you... That's the
5: idea. I mean, you, you see marathon runners in their 80s. You see marathon swimmers in their 80s and even 90s. And you see people doing weight training in their 80s and 90s. That could become the norm. It's not just though. The, right now, what we see right now in these 80s and 90s is mostly physical through physical exercise. But what I'm saying is that's equally important, but emotional resiliency, um, being at peace with yourself, having healthy relationships, following a diet that is rich in phytochemicals, which are chemicals derived from the energy of the sun. All of this is going to change the way aging occurs. So I think in the future, we'll see the wisdom of aging combined with the biology of youth. That would be a perfect combination.
4: So it's interesting. One of the conversations I wanted to have with you was on Joe Biden, who, uh, our president-elect, who is 77, soon to be 78. You know, President Trump, obviously, 74. And there there certainly has been a part of me as I've talked on this show with Mayor Pete, who's in his 30s, and, and Stacey Abrams and others, that has wondered, is it a good idea for the United States to have a leader in such a tumultuous time who is in their late 70s, even if they're embracing some of the things that you're talking about? like, Do you have any concern about about that?
5: I have no concern uh, about Joe Biden, especially, because I also think he is uh, aware enough to know that he can get people like Pete and Kamala Harris, and so many others, to be part of his team. And ultimate leadership, the way we are seeing it in the future, is going to be a more distributed leadership, not what we call the spider model. You know, the spider model of leadership is, the spider has one head, you squash it, it's dead. There's another model for leadership, it's called the starfish model. You look at a starfish, it has six limbs. You cut one, it sprouts two more. You cut all six, 36 more. So, distributed leadership can lead to an emergent way of governance, which will be much smarter. And that means shared vision, complementing the strengths of everyone on your team, and some kind of emotional and spiritual connection. That's all you need, like a good sports team. So, if you could copy the elements of a sports team in a, in a, say, leadership, even in the political era, that would be the solution in the futures. Bottom line, I have confidence that uh, Joe Biden will select a team where everybody will complement each other's strengths and he can use the wisdom of his experience. After all, all these 40 years, he's been in governance and that would make an effective team in my view.
4: So so Dr. Obama, this is actually a very interesting question, this question on leadership and thinking about it across different arenas. When you talked about the distributed starfish form of leadership, before I thought about a sports team, you know what I actually thought about was uh, was ISIS. And I thought about some of the terrorist organizations who even as one person, uh, may be sidelined, uh, new leaders emerge. And maybe a second thought I would have would be some around some of the social justice movements over the years where you saw not only Dr. King, but you saw in this country, Stokely Carmichael, and you saw John Lewis, and you saw Fannie Lou Hamer, and others, and so other people would still emerge. But, but do you think that this distributed starfish leadership that you describe, and it's interesting that you mentioned sports teams, because where I grew up, the University of Miami had a version of that where they didn't just have one star player, but they had many. And part of why I admired them is that over a 30-year span of time, even though the players were different, they kept being very good. And even though the coaches were different and there was lots of change, there still was that kind of starfish regeneration happening. But do you think this can happen in business? I'm not sure it can. Do you think this can happen
5: in, in business or
4: even government, here in the States at least?
5: Uh, it'll take a while, but it's happened. You gave a good example, civil rights movement. You know, I was very close to Rosa Parks, just so you know. And so I'm a great uh, admirer of the whole movement as it has evolved over the last so many years and it is continuing to evolve. Black Lives Matter is only the first step. This is going to go much further because now we know the backstory, we know the current story, we know what's happening. We need to reimagine a new story and a new story means death of the old story and resurrection of a new story, new context, new meaning, new relationships, new archetypes. And, you know, people like Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., all these people are actually archetypes. They're like, you know, like Mahatma Gandhi is an archetype. Nelson Mandela is an archetype. And as we model these archetypes in our own awareness, we can lead to a grassroots movement globally, especially through technology today. You know, we're using technology right now. So we can use technology to create, democratize, Social movements and it's happening. We need to get over the angst and the despair that has occurred recently as a result of some backlash, you know. But that's going, like any other phase transition, when you have the death of an old paradigm and the birth of a new paradigm, there's turbulence. Phase transition means the whole system is changing. Water is becoming steam. And as water becomes steam, there's a lot of agitation and there's boiling and there's you know fear and there's hurt. But once the transition occurs, it's a complete different story. So, yes, you also said, Can this happen in business? There is a movement. I was co-founder of a movement called Just Capital. I was teaching a course on just capitalism at Columbia University. Now we have a nonprofit called Just Capital, which actually certifies businesses that are doing good for the world. So you know the ecosystem of business includes employees, employers, investors, and of course, the public at large. So if a business is actually going to be successful, it can't be only thinking of the investors, which is what we've done on Wall Street in the past. But now there's a whole movement that says, take care of your employees because if you don't, then if they're not happy, the customers are not going to be happy. If the customers are not happy, the investors are not going to be happy. If the investors are not happy, the business is not going to succeed. So we are moving in that direction and there's a lot of very good information. How do we do that? There, you know, There's a whole organization right now, non-profit collaboration, rethinking humanity in terms of climate change, uh, oil industry, food production, uh, materials, and everything that has to do with creating a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful world. It needs collaboration, which goes beyond isolation, ethnic isolation or racial isolation. Uh, To change the world, you need everything, maximum diversity of ethnicity, of education, of competence, scientific, humanitarian, entertainers, storytellers, all coming together with that shared vision. And believe it or not, it's happening in the world because I'm I'm, I'm a participant in many of these think tanks and you'll be amazed at how they're all coming together, bringing things like AI, deep learning systems, convergent technologies and global communication without any infighting, but going towards this grander vision for a new humanity. Now, now, Dr. Chopra, I very
4: much want, I think, many of the things you're describing, but let me ask the question to you a little bit skeptically, may I? Sure. What if someone said to you, I love what you're saying, it has a very sweet sound to it, but, but that it ultimately won't really touch the poor and the hungry in large numbers. It'll do anecdotal things, but it won't fundamentally transform the system. That what you're describing will become another interesting project of what once were called hippies and then yuppies and then hipsters, but that for those who remain hungry day in and day out and generation in and generation out, whether they're in rural India or whether they are in... A tough part of Boston that it won't end up touching them. What would you say to, to those who, who want what you're saying to be true, but fear that it won't really touch the mass, poor, and working class in large numbers in a in a narrow span
5: of time? Actually, I understand their concern because I was a hippie, you know, growing up in the 70s, I was a hippie. And when I was in medical school, There was Gloria Steinem talking about the feminist movement. There was Greenpeace. There was the anti-Vietnam War movement. And there was a, a, a climate change movement even then. You know, Greenpeace was part of that, but there were many others. So in my mind, I thought as a young medical student, wow, we're going to change the world. And now look where we are. 50 years later, it didn't happen precisely. Because he said, the poor are left out and the idealists become rich and famous and then they only think about themselves. So that is definitely a concern. However, you know, it's worth thinking creatively to answer the question that you have. So let me give you an example. At the Chopra Foundation, which is a nonprofit, we recently created a program called Never Alone. And the reason we created the program was I found out that every maybe 45 seconds in the world, somebody is committing suicide in the United States as well. 22 veterans die every day of suicide. Um, The second most common cause of death in teenagers is suicide. So I said to myself, along with some colleagues at the Chopra Foundation, can we do anything about this? So we created uh, a, a website called www.neveralone.love, okay? And uh, uh, over there, we created a chatbot, uh, and we called her She uh, She's a machine, okay? But an AI machine. And so people go on Never Alone, and she engages with them. And uh, within a few seconds, we found that people are more comfortable talking to a machine than to a human, because they don't feel judged. You know, humans, they feel I'm being judged. But the machine, they're okay. And it's private and so on. And so the machine gets to know them. PV gets to know them. And then PV engages them with the conversation. She can even identify they're at risk. And then she can uh, offer what you call pre counseling and so on to them. Then we said, how are we going to pay for this? You know, uh, if let's say we find somebody who needs a counselor. How are we going to pay for this? So, we created a blockchain and we are now creating a cryptocurrency with love in action tokens so that we can democratize even the financial remuneration for mental health. So, this is a creative process right now that we are actually democratizing mental well being, but even democratizing the ability to financially structure it. And you mark my words, in the next few years, you're going to see more emergence of cryptocurrencies and you know, blockchains. And as soon as industry and special interest groups find out about this, even for PR, they have to favor this. So in my case, as a medical doctor, when I was talking about lifestyle, I was being vilified by the pharmaceutical industry, by the academics. I continued to do what I did. And then the science came. Now all the pharmaceutical companies, all the academic institutions, they want to be part of it because they see that this is a movement that can't be controlled. So initially they come on because they don't want to be feeling irrelevant. And then once they are, they want good PR. But once they come on and they see the strength of this movement, then I think we'll have a lot of collaboration from business as well. Uh,
4: Dr. Chopra, I I love that. I hope you're right. Um, I've been hearing about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain for years. And for some reason, the fact that you are raising this unexpectedly to me is going to end up being my tipping point and is going to make me take it more seriously than I ever have before, uh, in part because I did not expect to hear it from you.
1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Dr. Chopra, let me talk a little bit about your own personal journey. What have you gotten wrong? I I love how much you've gotten right. I love that you have been confident even when others doubted you. I love that you weren't afraid to go from "Quote unquote conventional medicine" to uh, uh, to a broader platform, um, but but as you think about particularly this second part of your journey, um, um, what what have you gotten wrong, and what would you go back and tell the younger Dr. Chopra? Uh, I know you're going to do many amazing things over the next thirty years, but here are two or three things that 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 you probably won't get right, and if I could have told you earlier, I would tell you now.
5: First of all. Reflecting back, I'm happy that I did what I did. Because if I was not immune to uh, even vicious criticism, if I wasn't immune to that, that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. So at a certain point, I did decide that I was going to be immune to criticism. That I was going to follow my inner knowing based on my medical background. However, going back, looking at it, I think I was too sure of myself, which came across as arrogance, maybe, and maybe hubris. And so uh, I would tell the younger Dr. Deepak Chopra is, you know, more humility, more conscious communication, less debate. Let's explore this together. Let's uh, see where the science is. Let's not make premature statements, but at least let's look at what the possibilities are, and then let's see if some of those possibilities can become actuality. And so I would say more communication. You know, in academics, people don't communicate with the outside world, and they live in silos. Even in academics, among specialties, they remain kind of within their own silo. And what I've discovered right now is, you know, you can't just be a scientist, just be a humanitarian, just be a philanthropist, just be an artist. All these people have something very important to say. You know, as I traveled over the world, I also recognized that the street poetry of the United States, which we call hip hop, was being adopted in many countries in their version. And it was causing revolutions in their countries. You know, the the, the despots and the the tyrants of the world, they were not afraid of scientists. They could uh, employ them. But they were scared of the artists because the artists speak with a conscience. So, you know, I realized that no one has access to the truth. But if you bring everyone together, you start to get a glimpse of what creative possibilities are. And true creativity depends on this kind of collective creativity. We need to harness collective creativity. It can't be Deepak or uh, whoever, you know, in any area. That is gone. You know, we look at these luminaries, Martin Luther King Judea, Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, Jesus Christ. But, you know, today everyone has access to not only information and data and knowledge, they have access to the wisdom of these luminaries that we need right now, very desperately to heal ourselves and to heal the world. Dr. Chopra, have you, have you ever had your heart broken? As a teenager, yes, every uh, teenager has a heart broken thinking they're in love or whatever, and turns out to be an infatuation till the next time. So otherwise I would not say, you know, I was very lucky. My parents were amazing. My father was a cardiologist, a great healer. My mother was very spiritual. I remember on Sundays and weekends, my parents, my father would see patients free of charge. Um, My mother would cook food for them. And when they left, uh, they would make sure that they had enough money for their bus or their train so they could get home. And then my mother would even pray for the patients. So, you know, I grew up with this kind of, my father was a British trained cardiologist from a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians, but he also had his roots, spiritual roots, and he never deviated from that. So that kind of role modeling allowed me to always say, say stay centered and always um, in service more than in a selfish mode. So... That's the best way I can answer this question. My heart has not been broken in my adult life. That that is a uh, that
4: is a beautiful thing. And going back to what you were saying before about the molecules of emotion, you probably have lived a healthier life because that is true uh, in many ways. And uh, and so that is that has been a wonderful blessing. Uh, Dr. Chopra, talk to me about meditation and uh, whether you feel like that is a fad, has been a fad, will be a fad. It's interesting that the the guy who's my best friend since we were seven years old growing up, Otto, who's a teacher, has been for the last several years been trying to strongly encourage me to try and meditate. Uh, uh, He hasn't won out yet, but soon I'm sure he will. Um, But talk to me about how you see meditation uh, today. I I think I know, but if I'm
5: honest, I want to hear it from you. Okay, so the vast majority of human behavior is based on two responses. The first is called the fight and flight response. So in a threatening situation, we either fight or we run. The second is called the reactive response, which is the ego response. We try to manipulate a situation either by being nice or being nasty or being stubborn or by playing the victim. Look at any political speech when the person is losing. They try to manipulate by being nice. If that doesn't work, they become nasty. If that doesn't make, become, uh, work, they become stubborn. If that doesn't work, they become victims. Nice, nasty, stubborn, victim, this is the ego response. 99% of human behavior. Now, there's something beyond that. It's called restful awareness, which means before you react, you put the pause button simply put the pause button. Let's say you, Carlos, say, Deepak Chopra, you're a bloody idiot. And my initial reaction is to either be defensive or to respond the same way as you did. You're an idiot. No, Carlos, you're an idiot. Now, Instead of reacting like that, if I put the pause button and observe my reaction to react, I'm in meditation mode. So it is the witnessing of your thoughts, emotions, patterns of behavior, and basically that, you know, how do we respond to the world in terms of whatever it is, situation, circumstances, events, people, or threats. Uh, How do we respond without going into reactive mode and going into this mode of meditation. That's what meditation means. You break a habitual pattern of thinking and behavior. You cannot do that unless you go beyond your internal dialogue. There's somebody inside you right now who's speaking to themselves. Even as you're listening to me, you're having a conversation with yourself. Okay, that self that is having a conversation with this self never shuts up, okay? Now, meditation is a way to shut up that internal dialogue and go from reactive to restful awareness to intuition, to creativity, to a higher vision and to transcendence.
4: You make me think about that, Dr. Chopra, not only as an individual, but on this show, we've been thinking about this as a country. What if we as a country said that we wanted, we both appreciated the journey that has taken us this first 250 years, an imperfect journey, but we wanted to reset it, refresh it, transcend to maybe a new place. What if you were one of the founders? What if you and Ava DuVernay and uh, Padma Lakshmi and Malcolm Gladwell and lots of other people ended up being our Benjamin Franklin, our uh, Thomas Jefferson's, our, our George Washington's? What would you want to see in a new constitution and a new Bill of Rights if you had an opportunity to encourage people to hit that pause button and to reimagine
5: what was possible for the country? A reflective self-inquiry to start with. A reflective self-inquiry to start with. What do we want as a nation? Okay, what do we want? Number two, who are we as a nation? Okay, because it's not just one tribe or this ethnicity. Who are we? What do we want? What's our calling together? In this moment, what are we grateful for? Notwithstanding all the problems you have, there's a lot to be grateful for. You start with those four questions. Who are we? What do we want? What's our calling? What are we grateful for? Then you see what people feel in the way of, this is meditation and self increase You know, in the way of how did their body feel when they ask these questions and when they hear their responses internally? What does this body feel like? Because everything that you experience in those questions is a question, right? So the answers actually give you some kind of sensation, feeling, image, thought. We share that with each other. Then we create a common vision. And we bring in all the experts, you know, in every field the storytellers in particular, because facts without a story, nobody listens. You can listen to all the facts about COVID-19 and masks and social distancing. 50% of the country doesn't agree. Okay, you can tell, take all the facts about climate change. 47% of the country doesn't agree. So these are facts, right? So facts without a story, useless. Facts with a story, love story in the background, a love story, love story, love for an idea, love for each other, what I call love in action with empathy, compassion, joy, equanimity, and conscious communication. Conscious communication is, I ask you, Carlos, what are you observing right now? You know, what are the facts? Okay. What are you feeling right now? What do you need right now? How can I help you fulfill those needs? This is called nonviolent communication. There's a lot of literature on this, Marshall Rosenberg, many other people have talked about conscious communication. It works. You also treat each other with respect, because if you don't treat each other with respect, you lose them first base. You understand that there is a perception of injustice on all sides, otherwise there wouldn't be a conflict. You also understand that different people have different ideologies. You, re- you are ready to forgive and ask for forgiveness, not because you think the other person deserves forgiveness. I would never forgive somebody for slavery. Okay? But right now, it is important to forgive each other, not because we think they deserve forgiveness, because without forgiveness, there's no, there's no peace. You forgive because you deserve peace. And then you refrain from belligerence you, all the techniques of emotional and social intelligence, you go through your fear. Everybody admits that there's fear. The, the absence of fear, there's no hostility. So hostility and fear go together. Once you understand these principles, you create a roadmap for what you call healing. And my roadmap, in my mind, is a critical mass of one million people who have the desire for a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful world. And we can't do it alone. We need... A grassroots movements, and we need the best of technology, the best of expertise, the best of science, the best of humanitarianism, the best of artists. My hip-hop friends have saved so many situations for me in the past. I can give you examples of my friends uh, in Queens, in New York, which I call the urban yogis. These are hip-hop artists who are actually Uh, engaging in conflict resolution. Their hip-hop music is totally different, but it's as intoxicating as the violent versions of hip-hop. So we will see emergence. We have to have the will. We have the knowledge. We have the wisdom. We have to have the will. And we have to have the emotional longing for healing. Otherwise, it won't happen. I, I, uh,
4: I, I love that, and I love so much of it, including the love story and including the use of the word best because i think that also summons people to something bigger i think it paints a bigger vision or at least it can for for some people
0: delve into the visceral world of hip hop with the gangster chronicles Podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steals every Thursday, each episode provides an in depth exploration into the formative artists. From police brutality to systemic racism. Offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go.
2: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the General. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but...
4: Dr. Chopra, I often love to do this thing um, that I uh, call rapid fire. And so if you're okay with it, I would love to ask you about a half dozen questions and get your immediate reaction, if I may. Oh, yes, of course, God. Um, who is the most impressive or interesting person you've met in your very interesting life?
5: I've met many, but I would say the one that feels here, Rosa Parks. I had a very, very good friendship with Rosa Parks. She visited me here. She regaled me with all the stories of the civil rights movement. She was so sweet and humble, and she was a seamstress, and she was a leader. It changed the way civilization will look back at this era. So I would say Rosa Parks. Second question, what would have happened to
4: you If you had not discovered uh, transcendental meditation, if you hadn't kind of hit that uh, fork in the road and begun something new, what do you think would have been true of you today? I have an addictive
5: personality. I would have been some kind of an addict. You think? What kind of addict do you think you would have been? Oh, substance abuse, alcohol, cigarettes, all of that kind of thing. I used to do that, by the way, as an intern. Is that right? Yeah.
4: Interesting.
5: I channeled my addiction. I moved from what they call spirits to spirit.
4: <laughs> I, I got you, and I got it. Um, your favorite sports team. Who's your, uh, who's your favorite sports team? The Indian cricket team back in India. Which one? With the national team or which one? National cricket team. Interesting. What was the uh, last time that you were either embarrassed or shy
5: I don't feel shy. I do feel embarrassed if I made a statement that I realized was not accurate. So that happens occasionally, you know. For example, I might misquote a statistic or something. And you know, people have this attitude in the world, gotcha. So, you know, I'm very careful now about what I say. But embarrassed in general, not recently. I can't remember. Um, What's your Thanksgiving tradition? We get together with the family, and we do the usual things that uh, Thanksgiving tradition demands. But we also pray, and we take a little bit of time in silence. I am right now going into silence for one week. This is my last event with you, and then I'll be in silence for a whole week. And of course, there'll be social media, etc., from old stuff. But I will not be engaging with anyone in the world for the next seven days. And what does that do for you? It's like, uh, it's like refreshing the mind and the spirit, like having a shower for the soul. Ooh. How long have you been doing that? 30 years. Once a year, for seven days, I take silence, usually around the time, before Thanksgiving, just to thank my own spirit for sustaining me. How well do you know Donald Trump? I met him once, um, um, I knew Marla Maples well and I taught her meditation. So I met him once at the corner of 56th and uh, Broadway. He tapped me on the shoulder. He took me to Trump Tower and he pointed to that. He said, you see that? I said, yeah, I do. He said, that's mine. (laughs) That was my one and only uh, memory of Donald Trump directly. And why do you think he won? I know that's a big
4: question, but you're making me ask you. Why do you think he won? Why do you think he won? You say he won. How did he win? What did he win? Oh, interesting. So you don't see him as having won the presidency in 2016?
5: Well, you know, the popular vote, he didn't win. And, uh, you know, as we know, the electoral vote is all very politically engineered. So, okay, he won the electoral vote. Why did he win? Well, there's a demographic in the world that comes from the same fear that he does and they need to be healed. And then, you know, you, we cannot antagonize them. Right now, it's very important for Biden to actually ask what we think is the adversary with respect. Who are you? What do you want? What is your purpose? What are you grateful for? Can we help each other? We need your help and maybe you need our help. Can we together come together? Because, you know, we understand. Everybody has a, has a history of the conditioned mind, you know? And therefore, um, we are now taking a new journey. Do we want healing or not? If we want healing, then it's not us versus them at all. It's together. Dr. Chopra, I'm so,
4: so very grateful Uh, that you joined I I knew I was going to enjoy it and as you know I was very sorry that I didn't get to meet you last summer but there's a reason for many things and uh, and and so thank you very much for uh, for being so generous and spending this time with me. Thank you
5: we shall meet soon when things are better.
4: I look forward to it. Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening to the Carlos Watson Show podcast. Please let your friends know they can find more of our interviews on the iHeartRadio podcast app and Apple Podcasts.
0: Delve into the visceral world of hip hop with the Gangster Chronicles.